Hi, I'm Jonas Now. And I'm Julia Edsbar, and welcome to the Harvard Effective Altruism Student Podcast, where we explore the limits of doing good better through conversations with prominent thinkers about making the world a better place. We're now on season two, the light bulb moment, where we'll be interviewing some new exciting guests, as well as some old friends, too. So, Jonas, who are we talking to today? Max Bazerman is the Jesse Isidore Strauss Professor of Business Administration at the Harvard Business School, where he focuses on applied behavioral psychology and business psychology, and more recently, ethical decision making. He is the author and co-author of more than 200 articles and 20 books, most famously, The Power of Noticing. Thank you, Max Bazerman, for being here today. Happy to be talking with you. We were wondering if we could get started with a little bit of your background and how you ended up here at HBS, and in particular, what were the catalysts for your getting involved in decision-making, particularly ethical decision-making? Sure. Um, so um, I'm 64 years old, as I'm talking to you uh, in 2019, mm-hmm. and um, I've been in some in related fields for most of my career. So I, I'm in an area that used to be called behavioral decision research, um, now more typically called behavioral economics, although I'm probably more of a psychologist than than an economist. Mm -hmm. And I've studied the systematic mistakes that humans make on a regular basis um, for most of my career, um, particularly applied to the topic of negotiations. And more recently, I've been intrigued by the ways in which smart people engage in unethical behavior without any intention to do so whatsoever, or the way that good people do bad things. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so over time, I've just um, learned more and more about the effect of altruism world. I've read more and more and more about, from Peter Singer. He writes a, an enormous amount. Uh, Josh Green has become a pretty regular colleague on campus at Harvard. Um, and, and Josh, in many ways, has served as my kind of personal tutor on the way to learning about utilitarianism and debates in moral psychology more broadly. So what was your introduction to EA? Well, I think that I was uh, doing research with Josh, um, some, some empirical studies, and, um, and I became sort of aware of the topic of EA, probably from Peter Singer, um, so I've attended a number of his talks, um, but I, so I don't remember exactly when I would have first heard the term effective altruism. Um, a few years ago, knowing very little, I wandered over uh, to an EA conference at uh, MIT, um, and um, I saw this whole world of people who were um, uh, less than half my age, um, who were actively excited about a new way of thinking about um, philanthropy and their careers um, in ways that I found quite exciting. Um, one of the topics that is related to that, I'm, I'm curious, uh, the question of sort of how hardcore should effective altruism be and who are you scaring off and being like very hardcore and maybe personally and stumbling upon this, what, what 
were your thoughts with regards to that? And also, what are your thoughts now with regard to sort of prescriptively, like if you were to design it, how would you make that? How would you make that trade So I think that's a hard topic. So first of all, I think effective altruism as of 2019 has been shockingly successful in a small amount of time. Uh, so when we see the level of activity, when we see the related organizations document the number of dollars that have moved toward more effective philanthropies, um, it's quite exciting. When you see so many sort of people under 25 who are engaged in philanthropy in ways that just didn't exist before because they're attracted to not just altruism, but effective altruism, I think that effective altruism is just a, a massive success. I'm, I'm also stunned by the degree to which people in philanthropy either don't like effective altruism or really don't even know what it is. Um, so I've had lots of experiences talking to people who are heavily involved in philanthropy who have some notion that it's hyper-rational thinking that they don't want to know, to learn much more about. And they don't have a very positive affect toward it. Um, and they're kind of in this kind of fuzzy ground of not knowing, not wanting to learn because they think that they're basically afraid of it because they've been engaged in philanthropy so much of their life, their lives. They, they think of that as core to who they are and they may not want something that's so um, dramatically challenging. And, and you, you also kind of see, I, again, I, I, I don't mean to insult effective altruism, but you see figures like Ian Ross held up as a icon and his, his life I find truly remarkable. On the other hand, um, the goal setting literature in psychology would tell us that we want reasonably difficult goals, not impossible goals. Mm -hmm. And I think that when there's too much focus on impossible goals, um, I think that that may limit the number of people who become attracted. So when I think of the work of McCaskill and Ord and Singer and Green, I think they should just be thrilled with the <coughs> level of success that they've had. At the same time, I think that there's that they've captured an inner inner core that's attracted to the more extreme version of the message. And it may leave out too many people who we could get moving in the right direction. So I'm, I'm just finishing up a book called Better Not Perfect. Mm -hmm. and, and I see utilitarianism as the North Star, but I think we need to think about different ways to engage more people who find the current definition of effective altruism too extreme. Now, juxtaposed against that, you can certainly find in the wor work of McCaskill or Singer in their books on effective altruism, the notion of be better. So mm -hmm. the notion, so when I say better, not perfect, I know it's not all that original. On the other hand, the way McCaskill and Singer present it I think it it captures a dedicated core rather than what could be a broader movement. There's also this kind of fascinating age divide. So mm -hmm. I'm talking to people who are about 20. I'm 64. And whenever I show up at effective altruism events, um, I'm, 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 
well, let me back up and say, I'm used to being the oldest person in the room by 20 years. Mm -hmm. When I attend EA events, I'm often the oldest person in the room by 30 or 35 years. So the divide is kind of shocking. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm fascinated by how would we get more people from a, from a broader spectrum to want to do better, better as defined by effective altruists, but with perhaps um, a more achievable target. So coming off that point, I think one of the big criticisms of EA is that it's heartless or sort of is removed from the feel good aspect of altruism. Do you feel that this feel good feeling is inherently tied to altruism and psychologically, do you think that it's even worthwhile trying to disentangle the two? Yeah, so, so I don't think it's heartless to, to start with. I, I think that there's lots of passionate, effective altruists who are passionate about mm -hmm. doing as much good as they possibly can. Yeah. Um, and so we can go from sort of the people we've already mentioned, um, like Singer McCaskill, Ward Green. I think that they have a lot of passion mm -hmm. in, what, in what they do. But I think you are capturing something in the sense that there's a lot of philanthropists who want to meet, they want to hug, they want to talk to, and they might even want their name mm -hmm. associated with large gifts. And the most effective altruistic causes don't provide that warm glow that other philanthropic entities are able to provide. So I think for some people, the lack of an emotive connection ends up being a barrier. Yet at the same time, I think some people are able to develop a capacity to emotively care about doing the most cognitive good that mm -hmm. they possibly could. So, um, so I think we want both. I, you know, I think that um, if we can capture someone to be an extremist, that's great. And if we can get somebody to be 10% better, that's pretty good. Mm -hmm. And it may well be that the pathway to being spectacular is to be 10% better for a few years in, in a row and get people on the pathway where they actually care about creating as much good as they possibly can. So, um, so I'm, I've been a vegetarian for 26 years, but my wife was a vegetarian three years before me. And um, there's a psychologist by the name of Daryl Bem who did some research that is highly questioned, um, but he also did some pretty interesting research on our attitudes. And, and one of his interesting arguments was that we learn about our attitudes by looking at our behaviors. And, um, and I often describe myself as a Bemian vegetarian because the way I figured out I was a vegetarian was I noticed that I didn't eat meat anymore. Um, and similarly, I think if we get people on the pathway to goodness, um, then that may become a cause and that may be the most sustainable path to toward more effective altruism that, that we can get. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there's some sort of saying, it's like it's easier to do yourself into thinking rather than think yourself into doing. Yeah, I, I have a, a related question. There's a, a concept in, in economics that the holy grail in some sense is price discrimination. So charging every customer exactly what it's worth to them. And so that's come up, uh, yeah. for, for example, among the in connection with these ideas among the undergraduate effective altruists, thinking about 
uh, a student walks in the door and I'm selling them being an effective altruist and I want to charge them as much commitment as I can. And so currently it's like there's this very high bar of what it takes to yeah. be an effective altruist and we're thinking maybe we should lower it. And then maybe the, the, the third option, the thinking outside the box, is make it as hard as you can for everyone. And so one, in the context of veg vegetarianism, like a, a thing that's emerging is reducitarianism, yeah. where it's not about being all or nothing, but you do as much as, and reducitarian seems like a good phrase that kind of captures that mindset. I don't know if we need something like that for effective altruism. Yes. So, and, and I think, I think reducitarianism or flexitarians um, in the food world, they are part of effective altruism. So um, reducing meat consumption is and should be part of the effective altruism movement. Um, so, so I spend a lot of my time hanging out with what's they're often described as either the vegan mafia or the good food movement. And, and, and these are people who are, who have, who have given up preaching that you should be vegan or vegetarian because preaching doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And the percent of vegans and vegetarians in this country hasn't changed very much over the last 20 years. But the percent of plant-based products that are selling is going up dramatically. Last I looked, it was 22% a year over the last decade. And that's because of the flexitarians and the reducitarians and the creation of better products. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that we want to harness all the tools that we can. And it we don't know, um, but I wouldn't be surprised at all if it, was, if it wasn't easier to create a vegetarian out of someone who keeps on moving along the flexitarian um, continuum rather than to convince somebody to go cold turkey um, on, on the concept, so to speak. So you study a lot of biases, obviously. What do you think are the most pertinent biases when it comes to ethical decision-making and being altruistic? And what are some practical tips we can take away from Sure. So, um, so rather than one bias, mm -hmm. uh, um, I would focus on this distinction in psychology between system one and system two thinking. Mm -hmm. And those terms first came from Stanovich and West, but they were certainly popularized by um, uh, Danny Kahneman in his book, Thinking Fast and Slow. Um, and um, I, I think that so much of what we do altruistically we do emotionally, we've already talked about emotions a bit, yeah. and our emotional decisions just aren't as effective mm -hmm. as our more deliberative decisions. So when I think about donations I make throughout the year because someone asks me to, and I don't want to say no, mm -hmm. those end up being dramatically less um, deliberative, um, effective, than decisions that Marla I'm married to, mm -hmm. and I make in December when we're far more deliberative about our decisions. And I think mm -hmm. that that when we use our intuition, things like the person asking, the emotionality of the cause, the huggability, um, the how cute the picture is, all of these factors have a much more dramatic influence than when we're making a, a comparative assessment of multiple causes and thinking about where our, where our money can do the most good. Um, so I think that um, the, the whole idea of getting people out of their system one processing mm 
into their system two processing or being more deliberative is the probably the most important thing we can do um, in terms of making people more effectively altruistic. What is what is system one good for? You know, um, so so there are people who like system one a whole lot more than I do. Um, so Malcolm Gladwell is one of them, and I've been quoted as claiming it's the worst book written in the history of the world because it's no not only so wrong, but it's written so well that people remember it forever. Um, it blink. blink. Blink, yes. Um, and, um, and I think that system one is very good for telling you what you're going to be emotionally attracted to later on. So um, there's work by Tim Wilson showing that your emotive response to a poster is more predictive of how well you will like it a month later while it's, it's hanging in your dorm than your more deliberative, thoughtful consideration of that poster. Because when you consume that poster, you're going to be emotionally consuming it, not deliberating over it as it hangs in, in your dorm. So I think that emotions predict emotions very nicely. But I think if we're aiming for wise action, then system two just is a dramatic winner on important decisions. So there's, there's certainly cost savings in system one, um, but in terms of the quality of decision, I'm an enormous fan of moving us as far along towards system two thinking for important decisions as we can get. And I think that for the purposes of um, encouraging effectively altruistic thinking, I think there, there's simply no doubt that system two um, is a winner. I was taking a look at your draft of your, your new book. It looks very Thank exciting. you. And one thing that I thought was really interesting is your discussion on game theory and negotiation and how that pertains to the field of nonprofits and how we might see improvement in NGOs through more cooperative behavior. I was wondering if you could give a little bit more background on that and what your argument is. Sure. Um, so not, not only are there well-intended not-for-profit organizations out there that aren't very effective to begin with, mm -hmm. but in many cases they're competing with others that are similarly ineffective. And the result is the donated dollar is going toward paying extra salaries, spending time on writing many annual reports, um, meeting a variety of regulations that, that not-for-profits need to deal with, mm -hmm. um, multiple different fundraising efforts. And um, there's just too much inefficiency yeah. in the not-for-profit world. Um, inefficiency that would be competed out of business in, a, in the for-profit sector. And, um, and as a result, these organizations are not only not moving in the effective in an effectively altruistic direction; they're doing just the opposite. Mm -hmm. the The more it takes for them to simply have the funds to exist, the less funds they have available um, in order to um, do the actual work that, that they're in creation to do. And in many cases, this is then fueled by organizations that I often describe as parasitic, for-profit organizations that offer to do fundraising for them, 
and give them 20 cents on the dollar that they collect where the for-profit is keeping 80 cents. And they sell this idea on the grounds that, but it's 20 cents on the dollar that you wouldn't otherwise get. And for that organization, they are better off saying yes than passing on essentially what looks like free money. But that fails to take into consideration that if the donor hadn't given the money through this parasitic for-profit organization, they may well have donated it in another charitable way instead. So as a result of too much redundancy, as a result of including parasitic intermediaries to do fundraising where their own goal was profit maximization, mm -hmm. we end up simply not using our dollars, our charitable dollars in a very effective way. Um, certainly that's not a call um, against charitable giving, rather it's a call for more effectively altruistic giving. Do you think that that's an argument for fewer, but bigger and more all-encompassing charities so that there's less competition between? Um... Sure, um, but, I would but I would also say that it, it might be the case that when you go from four smaller mm -hmm. to one medium size, and you eliminate redundancy, the, the, the re remaining entity in many ways might be look smaller than four times the size of one of the original entities. And they might be able to do far more than four times as much good mm -hmm. because they're not spending as many dollars yeah. on overhead in existence. Mm -hmm. Part of what you just described sounds like a, a coordination problem that the incentives for the individual nonprofit are such that these Parasitic firms are a good deal, but if everyone does it, then you're back to square one, and it's it's maybe even worse off. Yeah, but I don't. Everything you just said made sense. On the other hand, I'm not. I don't mean to make it sound that deliberative. I think that it's more people are focusing on the uniqueness of their own organization, and each of these four organizations does have some unique aspect that the leaders probably do believe in, but they're not taking into consideration the collective good that could be done by a more unified action. And obviously when we move from four to one, before we had four executive directors and now we have one executive director. And I think that those political problems are relevant as well. I also think that the philanthropy, the philanthropy community can influence this by thinking about what it is that they want to support. Yeah, so in that in that context, I'm curious, you you mentioned this as an idea, like the, the for-profit sector seems to get a lot of things, things right. What are the, the mechanisms or kind of ideas that might we might be able to import in, in the effective altruism community? There's been talk about like thinking about it as an investor, or you want mm -hmm. ROI, that's a very basic concept, your ROI on your donations in some kind of, goodness, whatever, that is its own sure. problem, how you measure that. I'm curious if there are any other ideas that you've encountered or have had. So I think that there's a whole wave of thinking about how to help philanthropies be more effective and to donate to more effective philanthropies. One of the things that I, I love about effective altruism is that I think you have the right North Star. Okay, That is, you're trying to do the most good and reduce the most harm possible across all sentient beings. Mm -hmm. For me, that's a pretty 
good North Star. There are other organizations that are using business-like metrics, but they're focused on how to do the most good in New York City. Okay? Or they have a limited set of metrics. So the Charity Navigator has often uh, been at war with effective altruism because for a long time they only cared about overhead rate and the effective altruism community basically, I think, fairly um, criticizes the Charity Navigator as having a very, very limited metric. Um, and, and the sort of the disdain is reciprocated. Um, so I think we see more and more use of metrics, more and more use of business ideas that I think are broadly um, doing a lot of good. Um, and, and I'm not sure what it would take to get the Charity Navigator to broaden their definition of effectiveness, to get sort of organizations that are too locally specified to think more broadly, um, to think about the comparative effectiveness that we can create across causes the way GiveWell does. So I think that there's lots of room for improvement. Um, but going back to our earlier discussion, when I talk to um, people who are quite philanthropic but are my age, they, they tend to not even be on the pathway of thinking about a lot of these concepts. And I think that that's kind of a critical challenge of how to get people to think about being more effective rather than to endorse all of their old practices and switching um, to sending their money to give well. Mm -hmm. So you've mentioned utilitarianism as being your North Star a couple of times. And I was wondering if, like, to what extent you agree with utilitarianism and if you think that there are any real drawbacks um, slash if we need to take other things into consideration like rights and freedom, etc. So first of all, I'm completely open to, mm -hmm. to people wanting to put significant values on rights and freedoms. Um, and there are, I'm sure that we can come up with examples where I will, I will not be willing to go with the utilitarian response. So if we go from trolley land to the famous surgeon problem, mm -hmm. sort of am I in favor of dragging someone off the street because we can carve them up and use their organs to save five others? No, I'm not, I'm not in favor of that. So maybe that means I'm not a utilitarian. Or maybe it means that I think that we need to respect rights and freedoms if we're going to create a society that will allow us to become more utilitarian. Mm -hmm. So for me, um, um, for, for me, a lot of the deontological arguments I support, but I support them because I think that they are, they, yeah. they are practically utilitarian. Mm -hmm. And I think that a lot of that is, is consistent with, with sort of a Peter Singer view of the world. So I don't, I don't mm -hmm. remotely mean to be making this up. Um, I'm, I'm very influenced by, by everything Peter Singer has written and like chapter 11 of Josh Green's Moral Tribes, which covers very similar turf. Um, and uh, no, so I think that, that the reasons that we depart from a narrow definition of utilitarianism are often practically utilitarian. Um, and that's kind of how I think about it. But if you said, if nobody would know that we dragged the person off the street, we, would you now be for it? 
The answer is no. So so there's there's some limits. Yeah. I do think people have some rights, they have some freedoms, um, and I'm respectful of that. But I, I honestly, um, I don't find that much value in finding the philosophical problem that can get, they can find out when, when will a utilitarian give up yeah. on their argument. Um, I'm kind of very comfortable with the notion of how about we try to do as much good as we possibly can and if you want to add other moral, morally justifiable constraints to that, go for it. And now after you've added those constraints, now let's try to figure out how to do more good given those constraints. And, and that's the way I think about being better, not perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I guess another reason why I don't give up utilitarianism and switch, switch to being a deontologist is I can't even figure out what the North Star is to get to. Mm-hmm. Sort of, I can repeat all the arguments, I could give a lecture on deontology, but in terms of guiding my own behavior, it doesn't provide the clarity of helping me create a better world the way I think utilitarianism does. Mm-hmm. I guess also, going back to your earlier point, we're so far from a perfect world in which we need to talk about carving people up to save lives that it's not even a practical thing to be talking about at this juncture. Yes. Yeah. And and so so we've been talking more about sort of older philanthropists, um, but um, you also run into many people in the social justice world who hear utilitarian and treat all people equally. No, we need affirmative action. Is the response. Well, I, you know, again, I think Peter Singer does a pretty good job of talking about its equality of interests, not treating people the same that we're supposed to do in order um, to create the most good possible. And so, so when I when I often hear other limits of of utilitarianism, I often think, but there's actually no limit there. Mm-hmm. So I believe you uh, co-authored a paper a few years ago about, you know, signing an honor code before you, you know, take yeah. some sort of exam versus afterwards and yeah. leading to an improvement in ethical behavior. Yeah. I was wondering if you had any other thoughts of potential quote unquote nudges that could improve people's ethical behavior. Sure. So first of all, let's, uh, I need to go back to, to the specific of, okay. sign, sorry. of this uh, result signing first. It's yeah. not, nothing for you to be sorry about, something for the, for, um, my co-authors and I to be sorry about. Um, so we published this paper, which has attracted a lot of attention. Mm-hmm. Um, and I completely believe the result, which showed that if you sign a document, sign a promise to be truthful before filling out a document, that's much more effective than si- filling out the form and then signing mm-hmm. at the bottom. And it makes psychological sense to me. The data in the original paper is quite strong. Um, but recently my colleagues and I were working on a project to figure out how to turn this into an online tool Mm -hmm. to get people to be more honest online. So you could think about that from insurance claims to rating restaurants, um, to providing, um, uh, um, to providing data on a dating website. Um, honesty would be a good thing. Um, and, um, we started by simply trying to replicate 
the signing first result online mm -hmm. and we failed and we failed and we failed. And then we went back and did a sort of a meta replication of the original study and we couldn't replicate it. So, um, so I, as I sit here answering your question, um, it's the only thing that I've published that I don't currently believe. Um, and, and I feel bad about it because it's also a result that lots of people have paid attention to um, and know about. So we're, we're in the process of trying to write up um, a failure to replicate paper um, on signing mm -hmm. first. Um, so that just, that's just kind of a confessional for you. Um, um, because if I went by it to the next, to the second part of your question, I would feel like, um, I, I wasn't coming forward with, with information about something that you, um, provided as background. Um, so, but on to your question, what, what are some nudges that, that mm -hmm. make sense? Um, so, um, so I'll give you a few, um, one is um, joint versus separate decision-making. So um, my colleagues, Iris Bonnet and Alex Van Geen and I have a very nice study that shows that you would suspect women are discriminated against for math-based jobs. Um, it turns out that they're discriminated against when you think about one candidate at a time. Mm -hmm. When you compare two or more candidates, um, then all of a sudden um, discrimination disappears. I, I didn't say reduces, I said disappears. So when we evaluate one option at a time, a lot of our biases run wild. When we compare two or more options, we're much more deliberative in our decision-making. In ethical contexts, that's going to generally mean more utilitarian. Okay, And, and that's a result that I have with Josh Green and, and other people that were, that were more utilitarian in joint versus separate decision-making. In the context of charitable giving, um, I think that the more we get people to compare um, alternative, alternative um, philanthropies, the, the more utilitarian and the, uh, the more utilitarian the decision and the more good that would be created. So joint rather than separate is a pretty good strategy in life for lots of ethical ideas. It's also really good for just making wiser decisions. Um, um, Josh um, and Karen um, Huang and I have a, a just accepted paper um, on the veil of ignorance. And it's kind of interesting that, um, that, that Josh Green is doing a paper on the veil of ignorance because Rawls was known for two core concepts. One was the veil of ignorance and the other one was the Max Min principle. And Rawls thought that his maximum principle was um, in disagreement with utilitarianism. And Josh mm -hmm. has argued that that's just a misconception to begin with. Mm -hmm. um, but Rawls was certainly viewed as one of the leading anti-utilitarians of his time. And what we show is if we can get you to think about problems under an, under an attempted veil where you don't know who you are, then, um, all of a sudden, when we return you to making a moral decision, having thought about the problem with a veil of ignorance on, we make more utilitarian decisions. So simply, um, I assume that anyone listening to this, um, um, this interview knows the trolley problem. So I'll simply 
um, have you think about, actually, let's go with a footbridge problem. Sort of, do you push the guy off the bridge to save five others? Um, and majority of people don't. But if we have people first think about, you're one of the six people. You're either the guy on the bridge being pushed or one of the five people being saved. What would you want the decision maker to do? Well, now we want push. the push. And now when we remove you from that problem and say, now all we want to know is what's the moral thing to do? Now pushing has become more moral in the minds of the individual from going through the veil of ignorance reasoning. So, so we think veil of ignorance is a nice way to get rid of a lot of the biases associated with knowing who you are in society um, and leading you toward um, doing greater good for um, greater number. So, so those are the kinds of, of nudges that I think about. Um, I have a question related to uh, effective altruism and utilitarianism, a idea that uh, to some people seems to follow from sort of uh, utilitarianism, and we talked about sort of your approaches. Um, utilitarian is the North Star, but there are these philosophical kind of particularities that may not be super important for, for practical considerations. One that seems like an equally extreme result of utilitarianism, but very practically important, is kind of this idea of expected value of future lives, what's known sort of as long-termism in, in terms of a focus area within you. I'm curious, that's something that's emerged relatively recently as kind of a new dominant cause area or focus within effective altruism, what your thoughts are on that and whether that's you you ride the utilitarianism horse yeah. till it takes you all the way to a seemingly crazy idea like that or do you get off before or what? Yeah, so I don't think it's crazy. I think it cognitively makes a lot of sense that, that there's a lot more people who will be alive than people who are alive and we should value their lives. And I, I certainly think that we, we don't place enough importance on solving climate change um, as kind of a prototypic example. Um, my hard science background is very limited. And so within the long-termism long view, there's also people who think about a variety of other kinds of epidemics. And quite honestly, I don't know how to think through the arithmetic um, on the risks that, risks that they present. But um, if we stick to climate change, I'm pretty comfortable that climate change is shockingly important and more, more of our resources should be going to solving that. Um, I'm, I'm not convinced that we want that in the hands of philanthropy as opposed to the hands of, of getting governments to pay more attention um, to that topic. Um, but so I kind of see um, sort of my perhaps overly simplistic view of effective altruism is that it focuses on um, the suffering of the poorest people in the world, um, animal suffering and long-termism. So those are the three biggest branches that I see of effective, uh, of effective altruism. And I'm, I don't, I'm not very good at figuring out how to make trade-offs among those three. And, um, and I think that being highly opinionated about any of them could be offensive to other effective altruists. Um, but I am persuaded, I am very convinced that um, 
that too little of our money goes to animals and, re and to reducing animal suffering. So um, when you just look at the, num the number of dollars that goes to humans versus animals, it's, it's kind of shocking to see when animals are doing a good portion of the suffering on this globe. Um, so, and, and, it's, and I think it's cost effective to reduce that suffering. So I'm, I'm very attracted to, um, to, the, to the animal suffering issue. Um, but do I want to argue that that wins over long-termism? Not at all. And certainly there will be lots of animals in the future that we want to save. So the, so the two end up overlapping. I think all of these causes overlap. Um, I'm curious, this is a little, a little bit of a jump. Um, some of your research that we, we talked about earlier is how in the, these situations, um, good people can make bad decisions for various different reasons, whether it's system one that they're using versus system two, or kind of the particulars of, of that situation that leads to the unethical behavior, even though and, and it's not mm -hmm. intentional on their behalf. Uh, they're what you might call good people. EAs arguably are, are also good people. What are situations specific to EAs, either EA organizations mm -hmm. or EAs as individuals thinking about cost prioritization or whatnot, where effective altruists end up doing bad things un unintentionally or, or unethical things? So I, I guess I don't think of it as unethical things. I, I would... I mean, I'll, I'll reword it. Great. How, how might there be members of the effective altruism community who aren't doing as much good as they could do? Does that sound like your question or? or? Okay, yeah. So I had been specifically uh, reading through some of the, the papers you'd read. I picked up on a, a theme of these kind of good intentions, but still unethical outcomes and sort of business yeah. decision-making context. And I was I was curious if you'd thought about those same kind of situations, but in the sort of effective altruism philanthropy context. Well, I, so I, I guess when effective altruists um, do things that turn off people, okay. that's a missed opportunity. So if we're, if we're going to define ethics in a utilitarian sense, anything that you do that creates less good in the world is not as ethical as it could be. Whether you want, somehow I don't want to use the word unethical, but when you accidentally turn people off to the movement, then we're doing something wrong that, that leads that to occur. And, um, and I, I don't mean to imply that we can perfectly sell the concept of effective altruism to all people all the time, but it might be the case that we could do better than, than we've been doing. Um, and so, so I kind of feel, I feel bad criticizing because one, effective altruism has been so successful. And second, if you carefully read Singer or McCaskill or Green, they're not, they're, I mean, utilitarianism might be demanding, but these people who are the, prototypes of utilitarianism and, and current scientific knowledge, they, they're, they're not as demanding, um, but they get characterized as such. And so sort of what is this disconnect 
that leads people to want to turn away from the argument so quickly. So the number of people who um, who falsely stereo stereotype utilitarians, and most commonly Peter Singer, um, I, I guess find it kind of stunning when you hear things like, you know, I can't, I can't agree with somebody who thinks that insects are as important as people. Well, Peter Singer never said that, mm -hmm. um, but I've heard that kind of criticism so many times, and um, or that Peter Singer is in favor of bestiality or incest. Um, when, uh, when, you know, in fact, he's made comments about what utilitarianism would or would not speak to. Um, but the misquoting is kind of stunning. Um, even in the good food world, which I think has an effectively altruistic cause, um, the good food world consists of people who came out of the animal rights world. And a lot of them are deontologists, essentially, where they want us to sort of, they want everybody to respect the rights of animals and therefore that means not use, eat, etc. an animal. And they don't want to engage in the thought process of what would save the most animals possible. It's mm -hmm. simply, why don't we just stop eating them because it's the, the wrong thing to do. Um, I, I, you get kind of this sort of emotive breakdown that I find a little bit stunning. So one question I had was that you're at the business school thinking about you know, private companies and businesses. Do you think that the right place for philanthropy and altruism is in the private sector where you have all these separate entities? Or do you think that, you know, given people's psychological makeup, it makes more sense for it to be something that the government takes care of and then we work in our own self-acting way the rest of the time? Sure. No, I mean, so there are many countries around the globe who believe in moving toward what you just said far more than exists in the U.S. And I'm, I would certainly be in favor of um, the government being more involved in lots of, of in lots of ways to create more good than we currently do in, in the United States. So I guess I'm in favor of that. Um, I, I think it's true that if if we look at a country like Canada or Sweden or Norway, um, where the government takes on more responsibilities, that that then people feel less of an obligation to um, separately contribute, and and mm -hmm. and you often end up with different tax policies as a result um, of those different structures. Um, so so yes, I think it would be better if the government did more. I don't think that that would eliminate the not-for-profit world mm -hmm. in any way, but it, it might reduce how badly it's currently needed. Yeah, I guess I was just wondering if you think that from a psychological perspective, if it's just very difficult for people to do good, like are we, are we hardwired in a way to be altruistic or do you think that, do you think we'll ever get to a point in which most people are effective altruists? That's unrealistic. I don't think that we're going to get to the to the point where most people are effective altruists as as mo as the effective altruism community would currently think mm -hmm. of themselves, and I don't I, I I'll say that more in a more extreme way. I don't think it's even a, a reasonable goal. Mm -hmm. 
And I think that what we want to do is get people to be more effectively altruistic rather than to reach some reasonable level of standard. So about a year and a half ago, I was at a, the second effective altruism conference that I ever attended and I was interviewed and um, in front of the room. Um, and the first question I, re I got was, are you an effective altruist? Uh, an effective altruist. And, and um, I wasn't expecting that question. Um, and my answer was no. Um, but at the same time, I, I think I said something to the extent that I'm, I'm more effective now than I was last year. And I'm certainly more effective today than I was in 2018 mm -hmm. when I answered that question. And so um, I'm much more comfortable being better, even significantly better than, than having some standard. I, I, I would almost be uncomfortable ever claiming to be an effective altruist when I'm sure that there would always be more that I could do. So, so for, I, I, I don't like the, the yes, no mm -hmm. distinction on are you an effective altruist. Switching, switching gears a little bit, I, uh, a recent book that you wrote called The, the Power of Noticing. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious um, what, what maybe from that or just that general uh, area of your research are some of the sort of habits, daily habits that you use to, to notice? Or, I mean, and, and do you think of that, that noticing as kind of, is that the same thing as taking a step back and engaging the system too, or is it more than yeah. that or different or? Yeah, so, um, so at, at the risk of, of promoting my book, um, I, I would simply, I'd go back and highlight the fact that I think that so much of what goes wrong is a result of the fact that we don't notice bad events around us. So there's always going to be a Bernie Madoff who appears on the scene. I, I don't think we have any clue as to how to stop somebody from being a very bad person. But I think we know a lot more about how we could help the hundreds of people who should have noticed and acted on Madoff's data who didn't to take action on the next terrible episode that occurs. Um, so um, I think it's useful to think in the abstract about what would you do if you notice bad behavior and, and not just think about it in passing, but deliberate and make it a policy about how you would respond. And that could mean that the person in the cubicle next to you might be doing something pretty terrible in terms a fraudulent behavior, or it might mean that somebody seems to be being harassed. Um, and I think so often we see things and we don't act because we're not quite sure what's going on. Okay? But in fact, if someone had described that episode to us and said, should I act? Our answer would be yes. But when we're in the midst of that episode and we don't know what's actually occurring, we we don't we don't bother to pursue it. So um, so in that book, um, I tell a story which I won't give the long version of because I don't want to bore you to tears. Um, but where um, the number two official in the U.S. Department of Justice, a guy named Robert McCollum, 
um, was orchestrating a campaign to destroy the United States government's case against the tobacco industry. And I was an expert witness. And, um, and he tried to um, get me to change my testimony. And, um, and, but it was done in a way that I didn't exactly know what was happening. So I was queasy about what was happening, but I didn't know. And I was also overwhelmed in life and I went on and ignored it. And then I read in the newspaper that another expert witness, an amazing guy named Matthew, my, uh, Matt Myers um, at the Tobacco Free Kids Project um, had been influenced in the same way. And when I read his story, I knew I had goofed that I should have acted. And when I tell executives this story about my failure to act, they quickly let me off the hook and say, but you didn't change your testimony. And I said, yes, but I didn't report what had happened to the press either. And they said, well, you, did, you, you didn't change your testimony. And when I tell journalists the same story, they say, yeah, when you can't figure out what's going on, that's where the best stories are. And I think that a journalist mentality about wrongdoing is a very effective strategy for how to avoid being a node in a bad story um, without taking the action that you ethically should take. Sort of, I, I do want to close by by noting that uh, you've asked me some questions that have sort of encouraged me to be critical of effective altruism, but I think it's an amazing movement, and I'm just kind of delighted to see what's occurring, and I and I think that it has lots of upside potential. And 25 years from now, we'll look back and think about how philanthropy is done in 2019 and, and think about how quaint it was, the way people use their system one processing to make a whole slew of ineffective decisions. Thank you, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Now enjoy our theme song written and performed by Chris Baker Lee. Thank you.